Uh, and I think what, what I'm going to try and do with us is have a conversation about um, who we see Jesus to be in these verses, and then what's the response that is made by these people, right? And I think we can learn a lot about the kind of response we can make uh, as we think about this. So um, who is Jesus? There are at least at least four parts of Jesus' identity that emerge. And John's gospel is a very clever story. So the whole, if you, if you realize the whole gospel is written to help us see who Jesus is, he presents like every, every bit of the story gives us a different picture and glimpse and insight into this question of, uh, you know, who is Jesus? And uh, here we go. There's four things that we see uh, in this text, in this particular one. We see right up front, Jesus is the Messiah. We see that he is the Lamb of God. We see that he is uh, the one who is the baptizer uh, with the Spirit. And we'll have a think about what the heck that means. And fourthly, we see that he, in this text, is the Son of God, uh, which in these verses, that's quite a big picture, quite a profound view of Jesus. Um, and so let's have a think about this. The first thing we see is um, the, they come to uh, the, John the Baptist. He's baptizing. Uh, at the time that Jesus was around, there were many people running around the fringes of uh, first century Israel, calling on the Israelites to repent, to come back to God. There were lots of these movements. Some of them were purely religious. So they were like, well, what you've really got to do is just get your spiritual life in order and, uh, and prepare. And once you do that, um, God will come and fully and finally restore Israel. Others had a mix of uh, religion and uh, politics, never heard of that before. Um, and what by which I meant, they were both religious and they were what were called zealots who were saying, well, Israel is occupied by a pagan uh, nation, Rome, uh, the, the world's first great empire, uh, occupying Israel, brutal pagan rulers. And the zealots said, yes, we need to get our spiritual lives in order and we need to get rid of these pagan Romans. Um, they were the first, uh, um, there were movements called Sicari, part of the zealots. There was a subgroup called the Sicari who, who, who specialized in sneaking up to Romans and killing them with very sharp knives and then disappearing into the crowds. And they brought terror. They were the original Middle Eastern terrorists, happy many of them to lose their lives. Uh, to get rid of a foreign, and then you had the uh, the leaders of Israel who were sort of trying to do this dance of cohabitation with the Romans to be faithful to God, if you were religious, but still keep the Romans happy. And then there were others who were just really happy to keep the Romans happy because they got rich by doing it. They had money and power and status because they were uh, connected to the Roman leaders and got all their power and connected to the Romans. 
So whenever, and, and what, they, what they would try and do is keep their eye on all these little rebellious movements because what they were worried about was rebellious movement popped up and, and annoyed the Romans enough, what might happen? They'd come in and, ex, and, and bring about very severe reprisals on their people. And of course, that was a good fear because we know in AD, or you may not know, but this is what happened, AD 67, eventually the Romans got completely sick of this endless, incessant terrorist war in Israel. And so they decided once and for all, we're just going to go in and, and get rid of the temple, massacre them all, and put an end to all this uh, continual insurgency. It's a classic colonial response when your counterinsurgency doesn't work. You just massacre and depopulate the area. It's actually the drive behind Russia's involvement in Ukraine. That's a, it's, a, it's a colonial revanchist war. That's what they do. If you've got the power, you do. You eventually get fed up with cooperating and you just, you just massacre. And so the Roman leaders are very worried. So John pops up, people are streaming to John and they go, geez, we better find out who this guy is. And they, so they, they go and say, well, who are you? Um, very important question. Um, <laughs> I am not the Messiah. He is not the Messiah. He's just a very naughty boy. <laughs> For those of you old enough to have enjoyed the life of Brian. Um, he, he understood. He was, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not, I'm not God. I'm not Jesus. I have a very, very limited role. They said, then who are you? Are you Elijah? There was a and there still is in Jewish thought. Elijah had just been translated straight up to heaven and, and, and in Jewish and rabbinic thought still people are waiting for it. Perhaps Elijah's come back. Uh, are you Elijah? He says, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Uh, so there's a, a prophet in um, uh, like Moses prophesied in the book of Exodus that he might come back um, to uh, Moses. A prophet like Moses might return to lead Israel into glory. And he says, no, I'm not that. Um, and then he says, well, who are you? Give us an answer. Who do you, what do you say about yourself? And he says, mate, I'm just here to announce that, that the one that you've all been waiting for, the true hope of Israel, the true hope of the world is coming. He says in verse 23, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He's not the Messiah. He's just here to prepare the way. I, um, so when you go, if we think about in this text, who is Jesus? Well, he's the Messiah. That's what the quote from Isaiah says. And the Messiah is the anointed one the one who would bring final, full, complete liberation to Israel. And in doing that, in the Jewish worldview of the time, in restoring Israel, bringing Israel out of exile, getting clearing out the nation of uh, the pagan Romans, is restoring Israel as the center of the world, this would bring about the healing of the nations and the healing of all of reality. 
So John says, I'm not the Messiah, but I've come to tell you that the Messiah is here. And I'm not worthy to undo his sandals. So when we start to look at people, I find that John is a very, very, very interesting character, isn't he? Um, what characterizes, what, when I think about John, he's extremely clear on, on two things, isn't he? What's he clear about? He's very clear about who is Jesus. And what else is he very clear about? Who he is. And his role. His role in life. I find that really, so I've been thinking a lot about that. And I thought, we live in a day and age where we are very concerned to establish our identity, to know who we are, and to figure out what we should do with our lives, aren't we? There's like endless conversations. Who am I? What's my identity? What do I, where do I? And so where are we told to find the answer to both the questions of who am I and what should I do with my life? Well, in our culture, where do we look for those answers? Sorry? Inside. Look inside yourself. Discover through the process of self-examination, of psychotherapy, of self-help, of uh, wellness retreats, none of which are bad things, by the way. They're, they're all good. But look inside. Discover who you really are, your authentic self. And then once you've discovered your authentic self, then you can figure out, okay, well, how should I live to express my authentic self in the world? It's a peculiarly modern, postmodern way of thinking about the self. We're all prone to it. How does John go about it? And I would suggest, what's God's plan for us? Well, if you really want to know who you are, the first question is, you've got to understand who Jesus is and you dis I discover who I really am and what my role in life is by seeing myself in the eyes of Jesus or in relation to Jesus. Very simply, it means I am... I am not the center of the world. Here's the first enormously practical implication. Jesus is at the center. He's the Messiah. He's God. I'm not the center of the world. The burden that is placed on us as a culture when you find your identity by looking inwards is you also are forced to, you, you, you inhabit a worldview that says, I'm at the center, my identity, me. I'm the one who has to construct my identity, find my identity, and build a world around me. And that's, that's a crushing burden. I mean, it's very alluring at one level. But it's very hard to run the world. I mean, the paradox is you put yourself at the center thinking it's going to be a place of joy and freedom, and you discover it's a place of crushing pride or depression. Pride, if you think it's working, followed hard on the heels of your pride is followed with depression and anxiety when you discover that you, the world doesn't actually revolve around you. So John says, no, no, I, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the Messiah. I'm none of these things. 
I'll put a slightly psychotherapeutic frame on and I'll say, I'm not going to be defined by your projections and transferences onto me. I'm going to be defined by my relationship with Jesus. I'm going to put a political hat on and say, I'm not going to be used and defined by what you and your interest groups want me to be. I'm just going to be defined by who I am with Jesus. So it's an interesting critique of identity politics understood either politically or psychotherapeutically. Say, no, no, I'm, I'm defined by who I think Jesus is, which is the whole thread of John's gospel. And then John takes a very humble stance. He says, I'm just the voice announcing him, and I'm not really worthy to untie his sandals. I'm just here to tell you that he's coming, man. Get ready. He's coming. Now, of course, the trick with Christianity is we can sometimes present it like, okay, well, in our culture, we're told to look inwards for our sense of identity. And Mark, yeah, you've just convinced me that it, that doesn't really work. But if I look to Jesus and I find my identity in Jesus, then life's going to be great for me, isn't it? Yes. If you take a stance of humility and you yield your life to Jesus and you make him the center, isn't your life going to be fantastic? I mean, doesn't John's gospel promise that you'll have life in his name? Well, how did John, John the Baptist's life end? Yeah, yeah, he lost his head for Jesus. <laughs> I, I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? See, um, one of the things that I reckon has happened in COVID over the last couple of years, is we have discovered that many, many followers of Jesus and Christians in the Western world are spectacularly poorly equipped to deal with suffering and setbacks. Because what we've done essentially is co-opt Jesus into our Western pursuit of personal peace and affluence. And we do, in a religious way, we've gone, well, of course, you selfish consumer capitalists, you, you uh, Gen Z millennial inward looking people, you LGBTI people, you trans people who are trying to just define your identity and yourself and find life that way. We, we're better than that. We define our lives based on Jesus. But underneath it, there's been a dynamic that still goes, if I have a right relation with Jesus, then my life will be great. And then COVID hits and sickness hits and death hits and suffering hits and all the challenges we've had in the church. And suddenly you see people all around. I mean, I see this, the great disengagement from church and people, Christians all around the Western world, throwing up their hands saying, oh, where is God? None of this is true. And I'm like, that's a good question. Like, I don't want to, there's some real questions there. But right from the get-go in John's gospel, the first bloke who really understood who Jesus was had a very short life as a result of his confession of Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Where'd you go? So here's the question then. Do you think John the Baptist's life was better off with Jesus or without Jesus? Imagine if you had a parallel universe and when the blokes had come to John and said, who are you? He could have just gone, mate, I'm just here leading a political movement. What do you reckon? Do you think he was better off for his confession of Jesus or not? He was better off? 
eternally, headlessly. A sudden quick and over. <laughs> I guess there is that. The original suicide preacher. Yeah, well, you see, it really is interesting. The What's the worst? I mean, that, if... Yeah. 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 He took a long view. That's right. So if Christianity is true, losing our lives, our physical body is not the worst thing that can happen to us by a long shot. It's not a great, like I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we all go out and pursue martyrdom as a short circuit into heaven like christianity doesn't encourage that i mean it happens to it happens to people of faith and around the world today uh, there are people losing their faith uh, in all parts of the world and i mean northern nigeria for example there are people losing their faith on a weekly basis losing their lives on the basis of their faith in jesus i mean to say uh, so it happens don't go pursuing it but suffering Sickness and death are not the eradication or the sign of failure in your judgment of who Jesus is. It's important. I always say to folk, well, it, anyway, no, that's another whole sermon on suffering, which we won't get into. It's just important. You see, and that's John. Like, no, I'm here to point to Jesus. My life is defined by understanding who Jesus is, understanding who I am, and understanding what my job in the world is. Okay, uh, and then he goes on, the, the text goes on, there are uh, wonderful, wonderful descriptions of Jesus. Um, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's a big call, hey? I mean, and, and the, the, you can go through the Old Testament, the metaphor, the Lamb is very prominent through the New Testament in Genesis. So just if you want to look it up here, go and have a look at what the heck. Oh, that's interesting. Genesis 22, uh, Isaiah 53 are key texts. Um, and then obviously Exodus. I don't know what's going on. Exodus 12. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sin of the world. Because here's the thing. Um, no matter what we do with our lives, if we, if we build our identity, our sense of self and ourselves, uh, and no matter how much we pretend that our lives are great, we all know, everyone knows, if you gave me five minutes asking anyone honestly up and down Darling Street, no matter how rich and happy they were, in the end, you'd scratch just a little below the surface, you'd discover all of us know how messed up we are, and we struggle with shame and with guilt and with sin. It's everywhere. Now, it's well hidden, and we can pretend it's not there. So to say to the world that, there, that this Jesus comes to provide forgiveness for sin as the lamb of God who by his sacrificial death will take away the sin of the world. That's the whole point of the lamb metaphor in the old Testament, right? So the Passover lamb, the angel of death, this is, here's the story 
you may be familiar with it. Uh, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. God's going to rescue them. The Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go. God sends a bunch of plagues, which parallel the gods of, Israel, of, of Egypt. And there's this massive cosmic war going on. The final plague is God, the angel of death, is going to come and strike down the firstborn of all of the Egyptians uh, and the Israelites to spare themselves, to spare, to, to come out from under that judgment. Uh, they had to slaughter a lamb, the firstborn lamb, and they have paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house, and then the angel of death will pass over them. Um, that's what the Lamb of God does. Now, you know what's interesting in that story? Firstly, the assumption is the Israelites needed their sins forgiven because absent the blood of the Lamb, they would have been destroyed along with the Egyptians. So there's no, um, God is not a racist Sin is not sin and evil are not distributed specifically around uh, ethnic groups or identities. We're all a mess. No one has. There's no privileged status um, by virtue of our ethnicity when it comes to God and sin and evil and guilt and shame. Okay, so forget that. The other thing is, any Egyptian who'd wanted to could have hopped into a Jewish house that night and been spared. Have you ever thought about that? Any Egyptian who wanted to. And any Jew who had a good Egyptian friend could have said to the Egyptian, hey, buddy, I know this is going to sound really weird, but like on Friday night, can I just suggest you come over and have a sleepover at my place? Like that's what it would have taken to spare the Egyptian. Because what God's plan is, is to provide a way for anyone and everyone, irrespective of ethnicity, of race, of gender, of orientation, of socioeconomic status, of it, uh, anyone, everyone can have their sins forgiven because the Lamb of God, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God is freely available to anyone and everyone. That's wonderful news. That's wonderful news. And then what he does in this story is he, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You go, what does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew scriptures, what, you, what the Israelites were looking forward to was the, the outpouring of God's presence on everyone and anyone, not, not just on specific people. And this was a sign of, the, of God's love and power and God's healing for the world. And he says, I've come and I'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the wonderful news, and it flows right on from the Lamb of God, is that Jesus is the one who says to you and me that we can, have, we can be baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is another way of saying that is we can be immersed in the conscious presence of God himself to powerfully bring God's love into our lives, God's energy into our lives, God's presence into our lives. And, and that is no longer just in, in the Old Testament. God's spirit would come upon leaders and prophets and people for specific tasks. But it wasn't poured out on all humanity. And there was a promise in Joel that, that, that the end, at, the, at the end of time, God would pour his spirit out on, on young and old, on women and on men, the, the pouring out for everyone and anyone. Yes, God is with us. So Jesus brings to us. The, the, the universal availability of the intimate, powerful presence of God. Because our sins have been forgiven. So, and he's come to heal and restore all of reality. And then it says at the end, he's the son of God. He's God himself. 
uniquely connected to God. So when we are, when we encounter Jesus, we encounter God himself in the second person of the Trinity. And if you want to think about what the Trinity is like, you've got to go and listen to go online and have a listen to the talk of two Sundays ago. We'll talk more about that. So that's who Jesus is. I mean, it's a big vision. And it changed John's life powerfully as he understood who he was and he understood what his role in life was. But it also changed. There are, other, there are a bunch of other characters that we discover here, aren't there? Uh, we discover Brother Andrew. Um, let me see if my pen's working. Right now. Uh, we discover Andrew. And, uh, and this is... Um, Verse 41, John's there with a couple of his disciples. He sees Jesus. He says, look, the Lamb of God, the two disciples heard him say this. They followed Jesus. And by the way, just as an aside, the ultimate example of humility, John was really happy for his followers to go and follow Jesus. Like, that's interesting, isn't it? That's so countercultural because your followers were your economic and your political survival. That was your wealth. That was your sign of success. He goes, no, no, it's not about me. Go follow them. So they go off and follow Jesus. Turning around, Jesus sees them and says, what do you want? What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said, come, you'll see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who'd heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. So good old Andrew's a follower. And look at verse 31. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother, Simon, and tell him, we have found the Messiah. So John says, understand who Jesus is, great big vision of Jesus. You'll understand yourself. You'll understand your purpose in life. To illustrate exactly the implications of that in the story, First follower of Jesus, Andrew, sees Jesus as the Messiah. He understands who Jesus is. He understands himself. He understands what's the very next thing he should do. He goes and grabs his brother and goes, dude, I've just found the Messiah. Come, check him out. Okay, so what does that mean for you and for me? If we understand who Jesus really is, we're going to want to go to everybody we're connected with and say, hey, come, come check out Jesus. I've found, we have found the one who will fulfill all our hopes and our longings. We've found the one who will bring us healing. We found the one who will forgive our sins. We found the one who's going to give us life. We found the one who can deal with our shame and our guilt and our messed up broken world. Come check out Jesus. How's that working for you? <laughs> How, how you get and it and it's not an arrogant thing you see there's a danger in the church that we go well you know we have the we have the truth and look how good i am and if you followed you could become like me you go no 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 i am you know andrew is just an ordinary jewish bloke who goes i've met the messiah now if that's true that jesus is the messiah man everyone needs to know and i'm going to start with those closest to me so uh, i think one of the challenges for us is that there is, we have a subtle deal with our culture. The deal is this. 
I don't mind how religious you are and what you think about Jesus as long as you don't try and convert me. Believe what you like. That's awesome. Just don't push it down my throat. In Islam, there's a concept called dimitude. And dimitude is an arrangement that in an Islamic-controlled society, non-Muslims can live in that society in a position of dimitude where you, you have a diminished place. You are not allowed to speak out against Islam. You have to pay a tax. Your houses have to be at a lower level than the houses of the Muslims around you. You, you, you're, you can inhabit and indwell the Muslim culture, but as a, as a, as a second-class citizen. Uh, I have a friend who's a scholar of these things, and he made this interesting point. His name is Mark Jury. Some years ago, he goes, you can see that in one sense, Christian people live in dimitude to a secular culture. Our secular culture says, sure, you can live amongst us. Just don't cause any problems. Don't speak out in the public space. Don't try and convert anyone. Pay your taxes. And do your own weird little religious stuff. Just don't cause any problems that would rock the boat for us. Dimitude. A silencing. And we, and, and look, I, I get it. At one level, let's all stop killing each other over religion. I'm a big fan of that. But at another level, if Jesus is, we said he is, what we want to say to people is, hey, come. Check him out. Check him out. How are we doing with that? What would that look like for you to say to those who, who you work with? Have you thought about who Jesus is? I, I often try and avoid these discussions, which is hard for me because I'm a cleric. Uh, and I, I play squash with a bunch of guys. And, uh, and in this is how keen I am to avoid any of these sorts of discussions. On Friday night, I, was, I had a comp game and we're out having a schnitty and a couple of beers afterwards. And I want to go home because I'm tired and I'm resisting the third pint of beer that they're all on to. And I stand up to leave and they go, one of the guys is a Catholic bloke married to a Lebanese woman. He goes, ah, oh, Mark, what's going on with the Anglican church then? And I'm like, oh, dude, I don't want to talk about this now. I don't want to be the religious guy. So I said, nothing, mate, just, you know, you go ahead and no, then I had to give an answer and, but I really didn't want to, because what I wanted to do is for them just to treat me as a normal person and not have to get all religious. But actually it was a good discussion. And I thought, hmm, I need to help those guys get to know Jesus. What, what would it look like? And I don't know, because my squash career, you know, could be short lived if they all wanted to stop playing with me because I was a religious fanatic who pushed Jesus down their throats. But is that what we have to be? On the one hand, there's this fear of being excluded and marginalized because I'm a Jesus fanatic. And that's one extreme. And the other extreme is I just do the dimitude in intensely privatized religion. And, and then we're just a little religious book club where we get together, read our own little books, have our own little private faith and let other people go to hell. I'm not sure that's a good strategy. Somewhere in the middle, there should be a better way. Just the brother Andrew way. Go to people you're connected with and say, hey, come check out Jesus, why don't you? And then it's up to them what they do with that, isn't it? Um, Philip does the same thing. Um, Philip comes along. He's in Bethsaida. Uh, he finds Nathaniel and says, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law, 
about him the prophets also wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph and of course nathaniel's quite skeptical uh he says canberra can anything good come from there <laughs> i joke yeah he said balmain um come and see said philip come and see come and see come and see it's an invitation to come and check out Jesus. That's what it is. I feel like a particularly bad example of this. I've said this for many years. My brother, I prayed for my brother, and we had long religious discussions for many, many years, and then he became a Muslim. <laughs> so I say it's easy to feel like a complete failure. But our job is not to convert anyone to change their minds. Our job is to love people and say, hey, come and check out Jesus. Think about who he really is. And, I, that's, and, I'm a ho and I'm hoping it's possible that if people came and sat amongst us and became part of this community, they might come to see Jesus a little bit as we all follow him. But there's tools like Alpha, and you could just read the Gospels with them. You can encourage them to read the Gospels. It's all sorts of online resources. Come and see. Check it out. So who is Jesus? Messiah, Son of God, Lamb of God, Baptizer of the Holy Spirit. If I understand who he really is, that helps me work out who I really am. It gives me purpose in life. And if I understand who he really is, like Andrew and like Philip, I'm going to say to people, hey, come and check him out. It's not just for me. It's for you as well. It's for the whole world. It's good news. Jesus is good news for the whole world. Hey, And all God's people said, amen. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us so much, that you are all these things, and that you've grabbed hold of our lives and our hearts. Help us to be women and men who uh, help others come to check out who you are and perhaps find life in your name as we have. Amen.